Oh, hello there. Thank you for joining the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark. Longtime drummer turned guitarist, singer, and songwriter Matt North graces the podcast today. He's got such an amazing story that starts with his uncle, the poet laureate Jesse Stewart. His influence on Matt's life is unquantifiable, as was moving from his hometown as a child. But he found comfort and friendships playing the drums. It was such a help to him that he found himself playing as a professional drummer by the age of 13. But that's just the beginning. He moved to San Francisco for the music scene, but stayed for the comedy. He began doing stand-up and roomed with Patton Oswalt and Mitch Hedberg. Their dedication to their craft lit a fire under him, but for his music, not his comedy. Matt wound up in LA playing drums professionally and even doing a little bit of acting. But with the rising cost of living in LA, coupled with the discovery that his son had a learning disability and would require assistance, Matt and his family decided it was time to leave. They moved to Nashville, where they ended up in a lawsuit about the quality of the special needs education that his son was receiving. All of this helped to inspire his latest album, Bullies in the Backyard. Their songs influenced by Matt's legal battles, the job he had to get at the Home Depot to help pay for the battles, and even his awesome mother-in-law. Yes, awesome mother-in-law. Go buy the album at mattnorth.net, and while you're there, click the social links to keep an eye on this guy. And follow us, too, at Performance ANX. You can help us through ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety, or by getting merch at performanceanx.threadless.com. Rate and review, and check out all the other great shows on the Pantheon Podcast Network, like Long May You Young, The Rock and Roll Archive, Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes, Side Jams, and so much more. But for now, check out singer, songwriter, and great dad, Matt North, on Performance Anxiety. All right, so I would say, hey, this is Matt North. And I'm here talking about my new record, Bullies in the Backyard. You can pick it up at madnorth.net. And I'm here at the Performance Anxiety Podcast. I can do better than that. Can I? Or is that? (laughs) Okay. All right. I'll go for it. Hey, this is Mad North. I'm here promoting my new record, Bullies in the Backyard. You can pick it up at madnorth.net. And you're listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. You got it? Got a lot of questions, a lot of a lot of stories. I'm I'm really interested in hearing about because okay. you've got quite an interesting history, and yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by a lot of it. Not okay. all of it. We'll just we'll just keep boom, yeah. but a lot of it. So <laughs> just the fast, just the fascinating part. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> you were born in was it Michigan? Yes, but your family were coal miners from Kentucky and your uncle is poet laureate and novelist Jesse Stewart. So you Right. Your life is kinda like a almost like a country song. <laughs> or some kind of yeah. heroic poem or something. It's it you've got quite a, a lineage there. I do. I, I do. Uh, I am the only member of my family that was not born in eastern Kentucky. Oh wow. Uh, when when I was Born in East Lansing, Michigan, 1969. My father was working on his PhD at Michigan State University. Both of my parents are educators. My mother was a high school English teacher. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, you know, their history in Kentucky. On my mother's side, our uncle uh, Jesse Stewart was a, a poet and a novelist. 
Uh, you know, it's I like mentioning that in the bio and the press release because I, I really think that was the first glimpse I got growing up that reading and writing was something I could do. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, I mean, like it was, I had this uncle and I, I, I remember vividly the time in my life, actually, you know, looking at all of his books on the shelf in our house and my mother explaining to me, and this is our uncle. Wow. You know, and so hopefully young kids are motivated to somehow pick up a book and read and try to make it a regular habit. Yeah. I feel that just by virtue of having a relative who was a published author and successful, it motivated me to do it more. And, and I just devoured everything he had. And, and it was all stories based in Eastern Kentucky. A lot, a lot of them were based around his career. He was, Jesse Stewart was also a high school English teacher and, and later <laughs> became a, a high school principal. All that time he was writing and publishing, you know, so uh, a fascinating character that I was lucky enough to know and get close to. And I remember going up into his little writer's den in the upstairs of his home. He had this great little log cabin back in a holler in Kentucky. And and I just remember feeling like really curious and intrigued, you know, at this lifestyle, this guy who goes at this little desk near a window with all these pages and paper and a typewriter just spends hours and hours alone inside of his imagination. And that looked very interesting to me. You know, I was, I was a kid who preferred to spend hours and hours inside my imagination. (laughs) Like hopefully, like hopefully a lot of people were. Yeah. But, uh, but that was, say, a visual image of someone who was doing that as an adult. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and making a living at it. And it was just just a visual, just a glimpse of, you know, showing me that things like this are possible. Right. And to see that it, the uh, teaching side carried on into your family is is really, really wonderful because right. your teachers are so underappreciated. It's just, it's, it's such a shame. Yeah, I'm one of these folks who feels... Uh, <laughs> First, the first solution to everything is education. And yeah. the first solution to education is let's 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 double the salaries of public school teachers. You I, know, like yeah. our, our it's just a disgrace the degree that our country undervalues yeah. teachers and uh, it's worse than it's ever been. Yeah, I mean I couldn't agree with you more. I've got I've got friends, really very close friends who are teachers, and it's it's just tragic what, what they have to endure. The thing that pisses me off the most is, uh, and I learned this when my son was just, you know, first and second grade, when I started catching wind that these poor teachers are, they're spending money out of their own pocket just to have pencils and paper and crayons and appropriate supplies for their classrooms. Yeah. To the point where we're just, now it's normalized and we're accept, I don't accept it and I don't think it's normal. Well, it's horrible. It, uh, it shouldn't but be. That, that, I couldn't believe, you know, when I first started finding that out. Yeah, I didn't realize that too until uh, a friend of mine became a teacher and she started talking to us about all the things she's got to purchase for the classrooms. And, and she's like, wait, pens and yeah. pencils are not supplied by yeah. the. She's like, no, yeah. no, I got to get some of this, a lot of this stuff on my own. Around pocket. Yeah. Uh, so. So at what point did music make an impact on your life? 
a, a very, very young age. I, I remember, I, you know, in, in different chapters, that, that phase of my life where before I started school even, when it was just me at home, uh, my, my mom at that time was a stay-at-home mom, and we had a bunch of eight-tracks. <laughs> I, I, vivid, I vividly remember a couple of really great Chris Christopherson eight tracks and nice. uh, the pointer sisters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, just great. St- and it was, it was not just the experience of music. It was sitting near the little machine that played the eight track and my mom's collection of 15 or 28 tracks and looking at the artwork and the photographs and yeah. that time in our history, we had something before digital when we could hold something in our hands. Yeah. And it was a different experience. Uh, you know, music was also about that. It was about what went in your ears, but what you also could hold and, and touch and, exactly. and go to a store to buy or even wait in line to buy it outside, like I remember doing in high school and yep. uh, college. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about, it's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. But, uh, I always just loved songs. And uh, from a young age, I remember that I just, I enjoyed singing. I, I had great music teachers in public school, back to education, who yeah. seemed to have leadership skills that led the room in a way where the boys felt just as comfortable standing up and singing at the top of our lungs as, as a girl. It was, I, I remember a teacher who just made it very fun oh, going, to awesome. music, going to music class. And, uh, you know, when I was about nine years old, we moved from Michigan to Illinois. Okay. And fortunately, immediately, that first summer of being in Illinois, uh, you know, any kid I think who moves after the age of four or five, it's going to be a miserable experience. Yeah, I did it several yeah. times. It's, t- it's tough. Yeah, it's awful. And that was one of the worst years of my life. And I'd say that was when I really found music. And I'm sure it had a connection to how miserable I was feeling and how out of place there was a kid up the street. He was in high school and he had a red, he had a red sparkle Slingerland drum set in his garage. And I'd ride my bike by his house 
all the time, hoping I'd see him in the garage so I could walk up and ask him to play. And eventually I met him. We became friends. He let me play his drums. He started teaching me beats. We would jam to kiss albums and oh, Devo. Wow. And oh, nice. Uh, that's, that's where it all began. I'm so proud that my music career began in a garage. Yeah. Being taught, being taught by the neighborhood drummer who was, I don't know if, if, you know, it's always so cool when you're 10 or 11 years old and there's a high school kid who lets you hang out with them. Oh yeah. Feel so cool. For sure. And I was, and I had that. And, and this guy, always treated me as an equal and just like a friend it wasn't like oh you're a fourth grader he taught me a lot of basic beats and and before we knew it you know my parents had to buy me my own drum set because his parents started calling me i was knocking on their door at dinner time asking if i can play and and all that and uh it just grew from there it's connected to that first awful year being uprooted from leaving michigan Uh, I fell in love with radio. I I discovered WLS in Chicago, Illinois, and was listening to Chicago radio stations. I discovered the joy of going to the record store at the mall and buying a vinyl record. Yeah. Yeah. And just great memories from that time of going into a record store and there weren't just records. There were these bins that, that were important to me, you know, hit songs on the chart at the time they would sell the sheet music. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember <clears throat> my great curiosity was how do songs work? What's the architecture of these songs? What do these notes mean? And it was that sheet music. I'd open it up and find a, you know, a cheap trick mm-hmm. or the clash. And, and, and these great bands that they were selling the sheet music to their hits at the time. Okay. And I'd explore that. So drums advanced pretty quickly for me. I try, I remember trying guitar. I didn't connect with it. I tried piano. I didn't connect with it. Something about drums. I just understood what I'm supposed to do and was able to develop the physical skills pretty quickly. I got with a really good teacher. By the time I was 13 years old, my uh, teachers were giving me jobs that they either were not available for or didn't want to do. And I started making money playing drums professionally when I was about 13. Oh, wow. Playing, playing like wedding receptions, bar mitzvahs, private events. This was before DJs took all of our work. Right. And uh, I grew up in college towns. And so at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, there were always functions where they wanted a little jazz or a blues quartet in the corner. And so I started playing drums, doing that, learning very quickly. This is something I, I can make money doing this. I don't have to get a job at Baskin Robbins. Right. And I, I, I learned other things too, like show up on time, be prepared. You have to play at a certain level or they're not going to hire you again. It was very much, I, I understood the business part of it very quickly. And I enjoyed the reward of getting paid from that work. It just, it made me want to do it more. So it wasn't, for me, it wasn't always party time or about having an identity as a kid who's in the rock band. I I, I got to experience that, but it was, I was already working in my mind. I was already a professional musician played in a lot of cool bands through high school. We were always, this was the eighties for me. Mm -hmm. I idolized bands like REM, uh, the replacements, the pretenders and the clash. Oh yeah. Those were probably the top four bands that, that really, impacted me and, and, uh, shaped the way I think musically and what I love, you know, and, and, uh, 
went on from there. Tried to major in music in college. Okay, I I was going to ask you about that because you ended up moving out to California. Right. But you didn't start off as a musician in California, if I'm I'm reading my my bio info correctly. Did you go directly to San Francisco at the time, or was there a stop? I did. Okay. I did. You know, uh, I I won't go into the, you know, college for me was a long seven-year journey to get my (laughs) undergrad. Hey, I know the feeling. I went to three different colleges in many respects. It was awful. And in another respect, I, I learned a lot and finally got out with decent grades. I always kept with my music though, to say okay. when I got out of college, I had spent a lot of time studying, taking as many classes as I could in writing and communications and English. And I got a job out of college at mother Jones magazine. Oh, okay. In San Francisco. Right. I was more interested in San Francisco than I was in Mother Jones magazine. <laughs> and I applied for the job and, you know, the stars aligned and they hired me. And uh, I just was thrilled to get to move to San Francisco because in my mind, I'm thinking, what a great city to have a job and look for other musicians to play with and make music with. Yeah. So even when I was just fresh out of college and, and working for Mother Jones, when I wasn't at Mother Jones, I, I was just going wild all around the city, having the time of my life. I was one of these kids who read way too much Jack Kerouac. And <laughs> I was living in a fantasy novel during that time. It was, it was a great, really great period. And I made friends with tons of comedians in the San Francisco Bay area. Yeah. And I hung to, out with that crowd. I was, I wanted to ask you how you got into that because you're, Two of your roommates were Patton Oswalt and one of my favorite people on the planet, Mitch Hedberg, and I miss him so much. Yeah, me too. How did me you? Too. How did you end up hooking up with with Patton and Mitch? Wow. Well, every Sunday night in San Francisco, I still think it's this way at the downtown at the Punchline in downtown San Francisco. Sunday night was the open mic. Okay. And when I was in college, I had a really fascinating teacher in the journalism department at Ohio University. His name was Mel Hellitzer. He ran an advertising firm in Manhattan before he became a professor at Ohio University. And I'm talking, this guy was an ad man in the era that they based the whole TV show Mad Men off. Okay. Prior to that, he was a joke writer for Ernie Kovacs. Oh, wow. Yeah, who was David Letterman's idol? Yeah. You know, Ernie Kovacs was the first maybe obscure, offbeat, out there comedian who just did weird stuff that you either got it or you didn't get it. Yeah. And he didn't and he didn't give a shit. So <laughs> I had a college professor who's a former joke writer for Ernie Kovacs, and he taught a class called humor writing. Oh, I took it. And the final for that class was to get up and do a five minute stand up comedy routine. But throughout the semester, you had these assignments, like go write 10 greeting cards where the outside says something stupid and you open it up and it opens up to a bad joke, you know, and, and taught us all kinds of old school approaches to writing jokes. Wow. You know, like from like Borschfeld Jewish comedian approach, you know, it was an unbelievable education that to this day it filters into my songwriting. But at that time I went through, I did the five minute final and it went very, very well. Okay. Enough where when I was in San Francisco, 
looking for bands to join as a drummer, looking for other musicians to meet. I'd hang out on Sunday night at the open mic and just get up and do five minutes for fun. Oh, and, wow. And it went pretty well. Next thing I knew, the club is asking me to open for Dave Chappelle. Nice. Uh, I opened for uh, George Lopez, New York comic Dave Attell. Oh, I love um, Dave Attell. He's just a sweetheart and a genius. He's yeah. one of the best ever. So anyway, I accidentally found myself doing comedy professionally in San Francisco. <laughs> and now, mind you, at this time, I was 25, 26 years old. I started playing drums for money at age 13. I was even a little burned out on music. I'd had a career. Wow. You know, and comedy, what was so funny about it to me was I was like, wait a minute, you mean they're going to pay me money and I don't have to bring a bunch of drums and I don't have to split the check with three other musicians. Right. This is great. <laughs> and so I just thought I'm going to stick with this until it's not fun anymore. I'm just going to, you know, but in my heart, I was always a musician who could do comedy, a okay. musician who was capable of doing comedy professionally, but through that culture in San Francisco, I became friends with Mitch Hedberg. Probably, I think in my first week in San Francisco, I met Mitch at the punchline. Oh, wow. And uh, I can, I can talk forever about Mitch, just what a sweetheart of a, a good person. And I like to talk about how hardworking he was. He comes across as this character of a stoner surfer, California guy. Yep. <laughs> and he is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, I've never seen anyone, you know, just sit down and put more time into his writing other wow. than Patton. Uh, but Mitch was one of those guys. I think he was very underestimated and people maybe assumed he's winging it or making this stuff up. He never was. All of wow. it was structured, calculated, crafted. He worked incredibly hard at his material. And I like to point to Mitch and Patton Oswald as just, by virtue of being near them and rooming with them, I saw how hard they worked firsthand. I was younger than them. I was probably six or seven years younger than them. Okay. Patton had been doing stand-up comedy at that time for 10 or 12 years. Wow. So I always, I always compare it to this. I was 25 years old rooming with Patton and Mitch. These are guys who, it was as if you're a sophomore in college and you get to room with PhD candidates who are <laughs> wrapping up their dissertation and they're okay. experts in their field. So I got to just be near these guys and I saw how hard they worked and it woke me up and made me realize I need to work harder. I'm not doing the work. Sure. I have ability. Sure. I understand how to do this, but I'd come home to the apartment and I barely saw Patton. His door was closed. The light was on at the bottom of the door and I could hear the typewriter going. And that was all I needed to go okay, I need to do that. I need to do what Patton does. And it changed my life. Okay. You know, he, I, he probably doesn't even know the extent that that impacted me, but wow. no, he, he's, and he's a guy who eats, sleeps and breathes comedy. Now, was that when you started writing? Like, like I know you, you've done a screenplay and, and done some other writing. Yeah. Is that when that all started? Yes. Okay. Um, this was probably 1996. This was a weird year in independent film. We've always had independent films, but 1996 was the year that I think almost all of the Oscar-nominated films, um, Fargo, Sling Blade, Goodwill Hunting, were all these low-budget, 
independent films where the actors in them wrote the scripts or participated right. in getting them made. Well, this was really inspirational to all of us at the time. And I, I love movies. I, I love the whole process of being on a film set and the behind the scenes stuff. And I just got into writing scripts and seeing if I could do it too. And in spite of the outcomes, I, I knew how hard it was. I really enjoyed the whole academic side of it. I enjoyed studying cinema. I enjoyed studying storytelling and how to tell a story and how to piece things together so that you can reach an audience. And there's very clear techniques and skills to do that. And taking, looking back on that and pointing to what I'm doing right now, there's a direct connection. I just hijack everything I learned from writing a screenplay and all those little questions you have to ask yourself when you reread what you've written and how to make it better. Mm -hmm. I just apply them. I apply them into my song. Oh, the thing I like, the thing I like the most is when you write a screenplay, you really have one destination, mm -hmm. which is to look a producer in the eye and say, can I have 20 to $30 million please to <laughs> yeah. make my movie? Right. I mean, what else are you writing a screenplay for really? Yeah. You, know, you, you're writing, you're writing something to attract someone with a lot of money to get behind you and make your movie. But when you write a song, I can do that for a thousand bucks. It's, it's, I really like this. That's I really like this songwriting stuff, man. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you also got into acting. Was yeah. that the, is that, the, again, was that the same time frame, time period? Same time frame. All this fun stuff happened in San Francisco. That was where I would say San Francisco, those were the wayward years where <laughs> I had so much fun with screenwriting, hanging out with comedians, meeting independent filmmakers. Um, I never got around to joining a band. Uh, I continued to like play with people at jam sessions mm -hmm. and, and was kept up with the drums. But, you know, looking all back on it, back on it now, it was, yeah, I had, I had already had like a 15-year a, a career as a drummer, and I was ready for a break. Yeah. And I feel like San Francisco to early days in Los Angeles were this wonderful five-year part of my life where I, I backed into acting. I had friends who were making independent films in San Francisco. They say, hey, there's this character you'd be great for. Why don't you come see if it's fun for you? And that's how I got into it. I was invited to be in low budget independent films. I don't even think any of them were completed. <laughs> uh, but what I learned, how what I learned being on those sets was how hard it is to make a movie, and you know, and the, and the money that has to be in place in order for all of it to get done, oh, and yeah. uh, the the organization, and then like, but it was so we we thought we were going to change the world. But we, we ended up making like 20 minutes of a two hour movie. But I, I had so much fun playing characters. The same way I felt about comedy was there's no reason not to explore this. There's no reason not to do this. Right. And I always felt like I'm still a musician who's being allowed into this little world as an imposter, but I'm doing good enough to stay. Okay. And maybe I thought I was thinking maybe that's my secret weapon. Maybe I'm a better actor if I don't identify in my mind of I am an actor who's formally trained, which I was not. Right. But, you know, I had good experiences and, and, uh, and over time I got, got hired to do some pretty cool stuff on in film and TV, but always saw myself 
as a musician. Okay. Uh, like like I mentioned, I, I grew up really into Chris Christopherson. And anyone who knows Christopherson knows he wrote songs, made records, and showed up in movies as playing characters. Yep. Uh, so did Glenn Campbell. So did David Bowie. And before them, uh, Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. So True. I was sort of feeling like, hey, I can maybe create a cool little career that's different than most musicians where I'm going to do like Bowie and Christopherson, man. <laughs> it's that's so it's cool. a lot of fun. It's I don't go to bed at night thinking about acting, but the times where it's gone well, I always say it's probably some of the most fun I'll ever have. That, oh, that is so great. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I actually tried doing a, a film once I, in the grand scheme of things. It wasn't all that long ago, it was like maybe 10 years ago. So I know exactly what you mean. It's just, it, it's daunting. It's just, yeah. it was so but, much fun though. Yes. It's, it's, it's fun. Even when you're failing. Yeah. Is what's about it, you know? And it's like, you're just out there doing it. And this, this is something I heard Patton say once and it made perfect sense. He just said he respects anyone who finishes the movie they're trying to make, even if it's awful, because it's just as hard to make an awful movie as it is to make a great movie. For sure. It's so hard to just finish. It, uh, uh, the people who get it done, I can't believe it. It really, know? yeah, uh, it gave me a whole new respect for every movie made. Like like, like Patton yeah. says, it's, and mine was a short, and I think we, we ended up doing like one take of, half of the scenes and it just and then it fell apart but it was so it was it was one of the it was so much fun my wife was involved my best friends were involved his wife we had, we had all it was just amazing but obviously yeah. nothing came out of it because i'm doing a podcast out of my living room right now so but this is just hey, as fun see we adapt don't we exactly exactly there you go and you just take everything you learn then and you transfer it into what you're doing now. I mean, you know, it's all about reinvention. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's another creative outlet. If I knew it's one of those things, like I'm sure you've think the same thing. If, if you didn't try it, you'd always have that question in your mind. And I don't now. You know what? That's the number one reason to do anything. I, I forgot. I, I just remember someone saying to me, you don't want to be 80, 85 years old, looking back saying, man, I wished I moved to California and tried to play music or tried to work in movies. I wish I didn't, you know, and so that's, you know, I, I tell my son, you know, failure is a success. If you're one of the people who actually tried yeah. compared to the people who never left their front porch. Exactly. So what ended up taking you to Nashville from California? Yeah, this was in uh, 11 years ago, 2010. Okay. I had been in Los Angeles for about 13 years. And the main thing that took me to Nashville was my son was born. He was five years old when we moved to Nashville. And we were at that time where we had just been through along with everyone else in the country around 2008, 2007, the, the, the recession and mm. the real estate crisis. Yeah. And things were getting pretty desperate financially for everyone. I recall my wife and I, we're hunting around Los Angeles to find a house to buy. And then we were smacked in the face with the price of real estate in Southern California. We knew it was high, but man, I mean this, I just couldn't, couldn't get my head around supporting this. And we were looking for homes further and further outside of Los Angeles. 
And at the time, my career with drums was going quite well. I was uh, playing for a lot of really cool songwriters and, and doing recording sessions. Oh, excellent. Had a small client, had a clientele of uh, private drum students and everything was, was going in a good direction. But we were looking at homes deeper and deeper, further outside of L.A. One day we said as a joke, why are we even looking in the state? <laughs> and we went home and got online and just couldn't believe the prices of homes in other parts of America compared to Los Angeles. Yeah. And then it got really tempting. Our wheels started spinning. And uh, there are two places I could have moved, Nashville or Austin, Texas. Okay. And I felt Nashville was where I want to be because I feel Austin, Texas is mostly there's great recording studios there, but it's a live music town for the most part. And that's, what's great about it. Nashville to me is more of an industry town where the recording studios are, where the publishing businesses are, the record labels are here Yeah, and coming from LA of city of industry like that. That's what I still want to be around. I love being in the studio. I love recording. And uh, that's, that's where I wanted to be. The main reason we moved to Nashville was my son, as I mentioned, was five years old. He had already been identified having some learning challenges and some special needs. Okay. And we were already being baptized into the challenging world all parents of children with special needs face, and that is trying to find the right educational program and the right public school for your child. Yeah. And uh, we were seeing the writing on the wall that this is going to get pretty bad. Wow. And um, we felt like it was the perfect time to move him because a five-year-old is still not at that point where they have their closest, best friends. Uh, your parents are still the center of your universe when you're four or five years old. Yeah. And I remember telling my wife, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it now. Because I remember moving when I was nine and I don't, I don't want to do that. I didn't want to do that to him later in life. Yeah. So we packed, we packed it. We just had to make a decision. You know, we could have, things were funny thing. We could have stayed in LA and made it work. Every penny would have gone into a mortgage. Oh God. Yeah. I can't even imagine. <laughs> it, would have been a, it would have just been a horror show. I feel. <laughs> and we, we, we come to Nashville and within the first two or three months, my heart rate dropped. We're actually able to save money. A Coke in a restaurant doesn't cost $4 and 50 cents. Yeah. You name it. I mean, across the board, everything was more affordable, which allowed me to relax and do more. I was able to go yeah. buy more snare drums and ride cymbals and you know, all that stuff my wife doesn't want me buying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. Were you writing music this whole time or did is that something that came about a little later on? I am just as surprised with my songwriting now as uh, anyone who's known me for the last 20, 30 years. <laughs> I have friends who send me emails. They go, I just still can't get used to seeing you holding a guitar, Matt, you know, cause <laughs> they've always known me as a drummer. Yeah. And it's like, I guess I've done the Peter Gabriel switch. You know, I mean, I've done the, I'm, I'm having to come up with all these PR gimmicks. Well now, come on. You got Don Henley, Levon Helm, Peter Gabriel, Iggy Pop started as a drummer, uh, and, and let's not forget Phil Collins. So, I mean, it's just like I'm a drummer turned songwriter, and to answer your question, I always secretly worked on writing lyrics. I just okay. never thought that I would have an honest impulse to want to record and sing my own stuff, probably because I never finished writing a song. What I always say is, 
I started writing songs in my 30s and I started finishing them in my 40s. Yeah, nice. <laughs> now I'm 52, so you just wait until I'm 68. I'm going to be killing it. You're going to have so, the whole op rock opera thing going. Yeah, you know, so, but I will tell you something pretty cool. Uh, there's a songwriter named Peter Case who was in a great band in the 80s called the Plimsolls. Yes. And they had, they had a big hit called A Million Miles Away that he wrote. And Peter went on to have a nice career on Geffen Records as a solo artist. When I lived in L.A., right after my son was born, my wife bought me a present to take his songwriting class. He taught a class at McCabe's Guitar Shop on the west side of L.A. And I took it and I called him to ask if I could take it. I said, you know, I want to take your class because I feel like if I learn where songwriters are coming from, then I'll be a better drummer when I support songwriters and work with them in the studio. Okay. And I was really trying to wiggle out of doing the homework. I was like basically saying, can I just be the drummer who sits in the corner and listens? And he's <laughs> like, yeah. And he's like, and I owe him everything. He goes, you know, that's really cool. I love it that, you know, you want to do that for that purpose. He goes, but you're still going to have to do the homework and, yeah. and write the song. <laughs> that's when I started having a deadline imposed on me by yeah. Peter Case, who was going to be the first guy to hear anything I wrote. And Excellent. I wrote some stuff. I was finishing the homework and he gave me some really good feedback and a lot of encouragement. He, he liked the lyrics I was coming up with and something about that encouragement from him in that class just made me go, you know, maybe I can do this. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and I just fell in love with the freedom of writing songs after so many years of being a drummer where in order to play music, I have to be invited by a songwriter. Right. You know, some things I've been a part of, for example, trying to sell a screenplay, auditioning for a movie, playing drums, auditioning for a band or a songwriter. In order to get near music, which is all I really want to do, I have to be chosen. I have to win. I have to get picked. Right. But not if I'm the one writing the songs. It's a good and point. this is it's like a whole new doors started opening with this. I come to Nashville and there's all these musicians I'm meeting and I can't wait to hopefully play with them someday. And I would say, well, you know, it could be a long wait to show, to think I'm going to walk into a session and get to play with Stuart Mathis or Kenny Vaughn. Yeah. But if I write songs, I can just hire them. That's a good point. Now that's not the only motivation for writing songs, <laughs> but it was just like this thing of, I realized, you know, I'm exhausted of, with being dependent and I'm, they can just put that anywhere, that, yeah. that kitchen noise. Just don't worry about it. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can hear I'm, all your kitchen noise, you know. I'm yeah. yelling at my wife right now. But, she's, um, she's, she's pointing a knife at me. <laughs> and it's, got, it's hey, dirty. It's not even clean. And, it's dirty. And, and you, it's a dirty knife. And, you know, she does it off camera so there's no evidence. <laughs> exactly. All right. So... <laughs> be very afraid i am she she does frighten me from time to time yeah. i guess that that's that's good it keeps me in line i think <laughs> otherwise but, i might just move out to la Unless that's gonna get me in trouble yeah well there's there's a lot of wives <laughs> with weapons out there too yeah. <laughs> there you go there's my next album wives with weapons <laughs> <laughs> You know, so this but, whole uh, podcast is inspirational. That's that's awesome. 
Oh, wonderful. Well, you know, just to sum it all up with songwriting, I, I was, I realized when I felt the first bit of euphoria from completing a song that I was sick and tired of being dependent on being invited or and, and it's being evaluated, you know, I mean, okay. uh, in scrutinized and, in, in and it's a necessary part of when projects have to gather up the, t- the people they're going to work with. Right. But if there's anything I'm chasing after it's when I finish writing a song, I have about a 48 hour period of euphoria. That's this natural high and it's very rewarding. And then it goes away, oh. but it's, it's, it's powerful enough and enjoyable enough to want to chase again. And, and that's kind of the, the, you know, my favorite part of songwriting when a song comes together and I finish it, I always say, I really don't like writing that much, but I love finishing. (laughs) Uh, I love finishing. And truly that's, that's the reward because people always talk about their great ideas or we talk a lot about with songwriting. Well, what, was the inspiration for this song, which is the light bulb moment or the moment it was birthed. Mm-hmm. But ideas are a dime a dozen. It's once that idea hits you, it's, it's honestly nothing but a lot of hard work between the writer and the finish line of actually being able to go, this is done and I'm ready to spend money in a studio and pay musicians to record it. With your first album, were you writing specifically to, to record an album or I mean, was that the end goal or did you just say suddenly I've got, you know, 10, 12 songs or more and Hey, I can yeah. do this. That's exactly what happened. I moved to Nashville and I was so inspired by the songwriting community in this city. It's like, I've lived in great music communities, San Francisco and Los Angeles yeah. and Champaign, Illinois, where I grew up great music town. None of those communities were songwriting communities uh, to my way of thinking. Okay. But I come here and I meet all these amazing songwriters who they have no agenda. They don't want to put out an album. They don't want to get on a stage. They want to write song after song and go down to music row and walk into an office and pitch it to a publisher. And it was a kind of career that I'd never seen before. And it just made me go, oh, maybe when I'm 60, I can do that too. Right. Uh, you know, because I, I always say when I moved to Nashville, I was 40 years old and in LA, I felt like an old drummer being a 40 year old drummer in Los Angeles. But I moved to Nashville. Suddenly all the musicians and songwriters who are doing what I aspire to do are in their sixties. Some are in their early seventies. Wow. There's really, what I love about Nashville is I've witnessed no ageism whatsoever in this town. It gets down to what can you bring to the song to make it special? Don't care if you're 20. Don't care if you're 70. They want to have you in the studio if you have something to offer. Wow. And, you know, the, the, the drummers and musicians I look up to, again, yeah, they're, they're 15, 20 years older than me right now. But so That's my awesome. first record, back, back to your question. I was just writing and recording songs in my home studio, which is where I am right now. Okay. You know, just to see how they turn out. And I was even thinking like, okay, I'll, I'll take some of these songs and maybe something could be commercial. Uh, maybe I'll go down and try to pitch some stuff on music row. I got four or five songs into it and it started to feel very personal. I didn't want anyone else to sing those songs. I wanted to sing them. And then I realized, wait, I've got five songs I could put out an EP. And then I realized I hate EPs. I've never bought an EP. 
<laughs> but I have been a part of albums and it's just as hard to promote five songs as it is to promote 10 songs. So why not see if I can record 10 songs? <laughs> That's how it started. I was wow. five songs into it and it just dawned on me, Hey, I'm halfway through making a good old fashioned 10 song album. Let's see if I can do it. And it pulled together. So uh, that's the, that's how above ground fools became an album. I did not start off thinking I'm going to make an album and there's a concept and okay. we're going to be on the dark side of the moon and right. uh, you know, none of that, <laughs> none of that. I love it. And I love the, some of the, the comedic and the storytelling influences definitely come yeah. through like, a good day in Nashville. I sold it all. Murder shows. Awesome songs. I love the stories behind Thank those you. songs. My wife flies around watching the murder shows. She drinks Modellos and paints her toes. I remember back when I decided to propose. She didn't lie around watching the murder show. Our air conditioner broke down on the 4th of July. She said, I'm a still waters run hot and cold kind of guy. Thank you. Thank you. And exactly. Those three songs you listed in the rewriting, you know, writing is rewriting. So when I was going through, when I was going through revisions, I, I reached for my how to write a screenplay book and just look at every verse, look at every line. And, you know, as, can it, when the listener hears this, do they see a picture in their mind? Yeah. And there's tricks to that because writers can often, I'm not someone who's a fan of confessional songwriting. Mm -hmm. we, we could call it dear diary songwriting. Right. You know, I, I understand that songs, yeah, they all come from me in the beginning, but in the end, it's really about the listener and what the song means to them. And sure. I have images in my mind, but I've worked with songwriters all the time as the drummer who they, they really want the audience to see it the way they see it. And I've always thought that's such, that's a fool's errand. Once you release that song, it's not about you anymore, man. It's about them. It's not for the songwriter anymore. It's for the fans. Yeah. And, and they decide what that song means to them. It's my favorite thing is when people come up and talk about a song they like, and they see it in a way that I never imagined. That's to me, the coolest part like murder shows that I mean that reminds me of my wife so much because she loves watching those types, of, those types of programs you're living it right now yeah is the band for above ground fools the same band playing on bullies in the backyard or is it two completely different groups everyone on bullies in the backyard appeared on above ground fool okay but like I mentioned earlier you know how I was just recording songs to see how they'd turn out by the time I got five songs into it on Above Ground Fools, I'd done what you'd call, it was a very Nashville album in that I was recording with musicians who were available at that time. Some guys I called, they were on tour, they were busy. And so I just continued to record at a decent pace. And you know, if you look at the credit list of Above Ground Fools, there's quite a bit of players on there. And I look back in amazement that I created some type of continuity. The, yeah. song, the album still has cohesiveness, but what I'm most excited about with uh, Bullies in the Backyard is every single song is the same band. It's okay. the same core band. We've got 
Chris Donahue on bass, who plays regularly in Emmy Lou Harris's band. That's incredible. He's worked with Elvis Costello and Robert Plant. Uh, Stuart Mathis on guitar, in my opinion, is the voice of the album. And I, I gave him free reign to just say, man, I love what you do. Do whatever you want to do. And he plays, he's been with Lucinda Williams for 11 years now. And before that, Stuart was with the Wallflowers. Okay, okay. Uh, he still works a lot with Jacob Dylan. And uh, keyboardist Michael Webb, who has done, he's probably in my one of the top three most in-demand Nashville keyboardists. Wow. He did all the work on Chris Stapleton's albums, Sturgill Simpson. Oh, wow. Um, John Fogarty, I think, right? He did John Fogarty. He was with Fogarty on tour and, and did a lot of, uh, and I think in the nineties during Fogarty's kind of comeback. Yeah. Swamp and, music um, or something like so, that. So, you know, these guys, so that core band and I did all the drumming and sang, but what I like to say is, you know, there's no such thing as solo albums. All I did was write the stuff, but these guys came in and put their stamp on it. And back to that thing of songwriters trying to control the outcome or wanting listeners to see it a certain way. Um, I went into the bullies in the backyard, very deliberately deciding these are three musicians who are, they're going to be the core band. And there's a saying, you know, you can't put a saddle on a Mustang and it's a big mistake to try to do that. I decided I was going to just whatever their interpretation was, whatever their take was, even if it's very different from what I'm thinking at the time, I, I'm just going to keep it. Oh, awesome. and I, I made a little, I made a rule for myself, you know, that I'm just going to take whatever they give me and I'm going to find a way to use it. Even if it freaks me out, you know, and, <laughs> and if it's bugging me in a month, okay, then I'll speak up and we'll make a change out of all 10 songs that we only had to do two minor adjustments, you know, but I kept everything these guys turned in and they're, they're all, all three of them in their own right. They're producers. They've produced albums. They've written songs and it would be foolish to just not give them free reign and, and let them do what they do. That's a good point. You know? They are professionals. Yeah. I mean, I, if I, I, if I have one really good talent, it's that I know who to hire. <laughs> That's a good one. I always try to look for people who have, you know, skills that are greater than mine, who have expertise that is greater than mine. And I'm the worst musician on the album. Man. I mean, the, and that's very deliberate. You know what I mean? I mean, that's very deliberate. Yeah. I, I, I've worked for songwriters who they don't want to surround themselves with people who maybe outshine them or know more than them. But uh, I'm completely the opposite. Um, those guys lift up what I'm trying to do. And, and I just look, I just know, look for who to hire and take it very seriously. And then, then I can sleep at night without anxiety. One of the things that really stuck out to me was the guitar solo on uh, Stay on the Outside. That is incredible. Side. 
God, I love yeah. that. That, that. That Stuart just one of those things that he came up with that maybe you weren't thinking about. Was that is that the case for that one, or is that something that you kind of directed him in that direction? Oh, I didn't give him any direction on that one. The only direction I'm going to claim is that I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> and, and that guitar solo, I you know I listened to it and I just laughed my ass off because. I imagine like Stewart in a session on music row, you know, with some old school country producer or something yeah. like nobody would let him do that, no. you know? And, and he, and, but when you listen to that solo, I've, I've, I've listened to it hundreds of times through making the record and editing it and everything, but it's, it's extremely musical, but it's got, it's got a little bit of a Kurt Cobain kind of vibe. And Stewart is someone who David Bowie would have loved. When you listen to Mick Ronson and Earl Slick, their tenures with David Bowie, I really feel that I've found my Earl Slick and Mick Ronson all rolled up in one. That's Stuart amazing. Mathis. That is amazing. You know, nobody, nobody plays guitar like him. And those are the people I look for. Top of the fridge. Yeah. That's very sweet. That's a that's such a sweet Thank song. You. On the top of the fridge, my top secret place, where a stash all my treasure, nothing else can replace. A jar of raspberry preserves that come in the mail from my hippie mother-in-law on the Oregon Trail. She's been growing those berries back deep in the woods. When harvest time comes, she's the gal with the good. You take a zip lock bag, drop a jar inside. Nothing has a disappearable with ship nationwide. To the is that a story? Is, is that a yeah. little bit of truth, or is that just something you made up? There's so much truth in that song. <laughs> and, you know, there's a difference between what's truthful and what's fact. <laughs> okay. Um, I start, it almost started off as a writing exercise for an English class. I was just, the top of my refrigerator is this personal place in my house where I all my stuff that I don't want anyone else putting their hands on because no one I live with is tall enough to reach the top of the fridge. <laughs> and it was, I keep my wallet up there, the car keys, my glasses, papers and bills that I'm avoiding and, and, yeah. and just all of it. And, and all, and so, and I'm, I'm very pro cannabis and outspoken about it. And that's the top of the fridge has been, you know, ever since my son was very young, that's the safest place to keep it. And I have the coolest mother-in-law in the world. So the mother-in-law character in top of the fridge does come from real life. My mother-in-law, I, I don't even think I've had a chance to talk about this in an interview yet. My mother-in-law is a former uh, music industry executive. Uh, she worked for MCA records in the 1970s. She brought Elton John to America wow. when he had his legendary, when he had his legendary troubadour shows. Oh, she was, yeah. she, she worked with the who when they were on MCA, she brought the sex pistols to America. Oh my God. And, um, yeah. This is my mother-in-law. And um, <laughs> she at the time had retired and, and with her husband had moved to Oregon and you know, they grew weed and, sent it in the mail and I thought this is hilarious let's let's write a song about it and that's really where the whole song came from and then the challenge was you know it can't just be about that and I don't want it to just be a joke how can I go a little deeper yeah and the third verse goes to like a flashback to my father and I realized the fun part of writing this song was I remembered it's like 
when I grew up, the top of the fridge was, that was also my dad's place where nobody was supposed to go touch his shit. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and, and I would get on a stool and go up there and it was a fascinating little world that was taboo and it's where dad's stuff is and what's he keep up here. Yeah. And yeah. just taking all that stuff and saying, can I wrap this up in a three minute song and, and make something. And, and so it took a lot of time, but out of all the songs on the record, that's the song I was so determined to write a song strictly about the top of my refrigerator, you know, and, and, uh, that's awesome. and it, it somehow I pulled it off. It was some kind of magic trick, you know, um, and people it's, it, I'm really excited. You put out 10 songs and you just start to notice, say the top three or four, everyone brings up and uh, top of the fridge seems to be an album favorite. And uh, I'm so great. pleased. Oh, that it was, great. it was a lot of hard. It was a lot of hard work. I also am a big fan of Hollywood forever. I'm a big fan of the uh, Bobby Knight mention. I think that's hilarious. I love that. Thank you. Red ribbons, silver medals, gold better with my hair and I like Bobby Knight throwing a chair. I'll take a second place first prize. Bring me flowers, pebbles and stones. I'll be waiting in a place for God. No, it doesn't hurt so bad Coming so close and missing the plot Thank you. So you're aware that when he threw the chair, when he threw the chair? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right across the yeah. court. Where, where are you, Mark, where, where, did you, where did you grow up, Mark? Where are you from? Oh, man. Well, I was born in Texas. Then I moved to New Jersey. Then down to Virginia. Then Virginia, back up to New Jersey. Then college in Upper State, New York. Then back to New gotcha. Jersey, then to Alabama, and back up to Virginia. Wow. And so you're in Virginia now? I'm in Virginia. I am Where are you? I'm in Winchester, Virginia. home of Patsy Cline. Okay. So I'm 75 miles on. Yeah, 75 miles due west of D.C. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well. So, but I'm a big college sports fan. College football, specifically. But uh, big college sports fan. Okay. Well, you might be interested to know, when I was growing up at Michigan State University... Bubba Smith used to babysit me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Man. Yeah. But my, my father at the time, he, he was an RA, a resident director at a dorm, at a dormitory. And so when you're the resident director, you actually get a little apartment. Okay. And so he was a grad student and that's where we lived. We lived on the campus and we lived in the dormitory where a lot of the football players did. And that was Bubba Smith um, before he went pro. You know, and Sparty. we got to be there when Magic Johnson and when Magic Johnson played for uh, Michigan State, we were there too and got to oh, see him. Wow. That which was unreal. That's incredible. College basketball, yeah, that's a big deal for me. That's incredible. Well, go Sparty. That was that's incredible, man. Yeah. Are you going to be? Well, before we get into to anything beyond the album release, there's a, a question I've got a little bit about the influences of the songs. You mentioned that you had a, a, an issue with the Nashville public schools and there was like a you yeah. part of a, a lawsuit. I believe. Did, did that have any influence on the songs that, that you were writing? Enormous influence. Yeah. It is what was hanging over our family the whole time when I was writing these songs. And, uh, I, I really felt it was an important part of the story and putting it in the press release, because as you know, these aren't 10, moody gloomy songs about special education right thank goodness yeah but long, you know briefly about our case 
we moved here. And in about three years, my son had gone through kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And it was extremely clear that based on his medical condition and his diagnosis from clinical experts, that we are facing a challenging future with the way that he learns. Okay. And it was not fitting in to the public school mold. And right. it became, it, it just got to the point where the best thing we could do was pull him out and put him in a private school that can give him much more of what he needs in order to learn. Okay. Well, public schools aren't eager to finance that. However, uh, briefly, you know, everyone in America is entitled to what's called a free appropriate public education. And if a public school cannot provide that to a student who is identified through clinical diagnosis by experts, and and that's irrefutable, Mm -hmm. in a perfect world, the public school is responsible to relocate the child to a private school that can provide an appropriate education. Ah, okay, okay. So the argument was the public school saying, well, sure we can, of course we can, and we have, and and we had to argue and prove, no, you haven't, and no, you can't. And basically, we were fighting for an appropriate education for my son. It was that simple. What the school was fighting for was to keep it under wraps and to not allow us to set a legal precedent or to create any kind of blueprint for other families to come in and do the same thing we did, which would be very hard for any other family to do because every child's case is unique and different. Right. Fortunately, we were able to prove this. We lost the first round. And basically, wow. you have to start off in, in a state court. And we were being judged by a, a Metro Nashville city judge who was judging Metro Nashville public schools. You can guess how that turned out. Right. We appealed in federal court and it took a long time, but we won. The reason it took a long time was our district in middle Tennessee at the time when president Obama was nominating federal judges and Mitch McConnell's Senate was ignoring and not confirming any of his appointees. Uh, we only had one federal judge in middle Tennessee and the other two or three retired. So my family's case, my family's case, along with hundreds of other cases in middle Tennessee went on the shelf until we got more judges appointed. And then, wow, more judges were appointed and we found out, Oh, okay. They're reviewing your case. And it was a Trump appointed judge. So we were horrified, (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, this judge turned out to be wonderful. Uh, kind of made me laugh in spite of myself that I had any fears that he happened to be nominated by Trump. You know, I just want to say there are some good conservative judges out there who are doing it for the right reasons and they're doing the right things and yeah. they're really doing their job and they're they're applying the laws to the arguments and they're calling balls and strikes and deciding who's going to win. Well, that's what you're hoping for because they're supposed they're not supposed to be they're judging though. They're not they're not interpreting the law. They're not creating the law. They're supposed to be enforcing it. Supposed to be is the key word. Yeah. We, you know, and they're the ones out there and we, we experienced it in the first round under a Tennessee judge under the laws for education. When you get to that point of going to trial, the outcome is very much 
up to a judge's discretion, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Uh, and and it's it's just a silly thing that I learned. He's like, I remember my lawyer telling me, yeah, well, it's pretty much up to the judge's discretion. I hope the judge likes us. Wow. And it seems pretty silly to go that far, right? And to make those many arguments, you're pointing at the laws and this happened and that happened and we've proven it. And then it gets down to the judge's discretion. Yeah. And, and, and so Ooh. even in federal court, we were biting, it was a nail bite. But in 2018, we were given a winning verdict the federal judge overturned 100% of what the Tennessee judge wrongly ruled on. And by the way, the Tennessee judge's verdict had over 40 factual errors. Wow. Uh, it was just clearly, clearly uh, written in bias and in favor to play ball for uh, the school. And then, you know, that was, once that was over, I felt really freed up and, um, uh, was able to focus deeper and get back to doing music the way I want to do it. However, okay. throughout that whole experience, I had started writing all these songs. And at some point throughout that lawsuit, all these songs in Bullies in the Backyard came from, you know, some point where something really tense and a lot of very stressful and contentious was happening. Yeah. And that's usually when my wheels start spinning and I come up with a good idea where I realize, okay, I've got, I've got something to say here. And, and I think I can thread it together into being a song. Well, stress can do that. I mean, some, some people thrive on it, you know? Yeah. So what are so, the, what are the plans with the album? By the time this comes out, the album will have just, will be out. Are there yeah. plans to play out? Are there plans to take it on the road or are you planning to write some more songs, do another album? Cause you had you were out of music for a little bit. You had to with the pandemic, I believe. You had to actually take a full time job. Yeah, is that right? Yes, that's correct. I took. Well, I was working. Is this kind of a two part thing? Okay. Our case against the public school became so expensive to pay the legal bills. Oh, I can only imagine. I had to do something. I just, I just hit this part where I was like, it was more important to focus on this case and get my son the education he needed than to pursue my little music dream. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, even I'm not, I'm not diminishing the importance of, of music or my career, but when you're a dad, as a dad, it was more about what does my son need versus what do I want to do? Right. And so the kid's always going to win out. And it was exactly what I wanted to be doing. I really never had any feelings during that case of, Oh, I wish, you know, I, I really wanted to be fighting that case. And I yeah. really wanted to be focusing on that. I went and got a part-time job at Home Depot to contribute to the legal bills. And we had to keep him in his private school. Yeah. We hadn't won the case yet. And we were independently financing his private school. And here's what I found out after years of surviving on my wits, after years of making money playing drums or, or, or whatever I was doing creatively, I really went into working for Home Depot, kicking and screaming and, and deciding ahead of time that I'm going to hate this. And within a month of doing it, I have to admit, I just loved it. All of the oh. people I was working with were so cool. I had never just had a job where I don't have to be amazing and, and <laughs> creative. I just had to show up and be a guy. And what it became was a much needed reset from the normal day-to-day -day pressure of trying to carve out a music career. 
it never stopped me from pursuing music. It never stopped me from writing songs. In fact, it helped me value my time even more because when I came home from work or I had extra time or a day off, I really took my calendar much more seriously. And suddenly I'm finishing more songs than ever. Then when I went day to day with, I, I'm a guy, I can't unstructured days. Uh, I really like to work. And uh, I just found that, you know, having a part-time job doing this, it turned out to be just a much needed mental experience that actually provided less stress for my life than more. It was, uh, you know, wow. really cool people are working. Everyone working at Home Depot in Nashville is a musician. They're all in some <laughs> cool band. Uh, I've got a friend in the hardware department. He had a number one song in 1997 called Good Morning Beautiful on the country charts. And, and now he's He's, um, I help him sort nails. Wow. So, uh, that's, that tells you how that, that can, that can tell you how this business works. Only sometimes. in Nashville, man. But, Jeez. Uh, oh no, but it's so much fun. Like the home Depot in Nashville, like the music we play in the store. It's awesome. I mean, I go to work and in a funny way, the music they play at home Depot influenced this record oh, wow. because they play hit songs, but they really cool obscures 1970s 60s stuff and like a weird country music oh, and nice. I, I just started paying attention to these these hits and you know like just paying attention like as a student thinking you know well, what are the ingredients that go into the why do i love it whenever this fleetwood mac song comes on why do i love it whenever this old steve winwood song comes on right and you know so as i spent you know enough hours there where that's a lot of the music that's going into my ears and i decided <laughs> well why not let it why not let it influence me oh that's and see where that, that takes you know it's like just try to take every little second of when you're spending time at a place where Maybe you'd rather be somewhere else. There's always something there you can use. Oh yeah. Well, this has been awesome. What? Back to the original question. Yeah. Are there plans to uh, take the album out or locally or a short tour yeah. or what? Are, what are you hoping to do? Uh, maybe besides, maybe go back to the Home Depot. Maybe not. <laughs> you know, I'm absolutely. You know, something I'm always that I know I'm doing it's because I don't have to ask permission to do it is I, I'm always going to be writing songs and recording a new album. I mean, I'm already, I feel like my next record that the songs are written and now I need, I'm, I'm starting to track drums and just do that process. Okay. Uh, playing live. The answer is yes. Uh, and I'm putting together, I'm, I'm working with the bassist in my band, uh, Chris Donahue, he plays for Emmy Lou Harris. Well, yeah. her band is called the Red Dirt Boy. Right. Yeah. And I'm talking with them and we're, we're going to be getting together and rehearsing. And uh, they're under no, they are their own band. Okay. You know, they go and do, they do shows in Nashville without Emmy Lou as the Red Dirt Boy. Oh, cool. And so my take is this. The last thing I want to do is put a bunch of grownups in a van and go driving around the country as a guy who has a 17 year old kid and bills to pay, you know, right. also because I've worked as a drummer for other songwriters for so many years, since I was a kid, I'm well too aware of the financial restrictions and what it really takes to do a tour, uh, in order to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And I would love to go do a tour if I was partnered with some entity that could provide the financial support to do that. 
I'm unfortunately not. However, right. locally in Nashville, yeah, I'm definitely going to be playing live. Um, cool. And it's going to be a new thing. I mean, I love standing in front singing for, singing with a band, but uh, I'm going to work on building some shows with the Red Dirt Boys. I just shot a bunch of videos in Los Angeles with Lucinda Williams' band. Uh, they're called Buick Six. Oh, cool! And similar to the Red, similar to the Red Dirt Boys, Buick Six does their own shows and and things without her. And so, what I think I really want to do is. I love playing with different musicians and having different experiences. And because I've been a drummer in so many bands, I, I always joke that, you know, joining a band can kind of be like shaking hands with your future former friends. <laughs> and, and, and I, I don't ever want to be the guy in charge that begins that downward spiral. So what I'm trying to orchestrate since the musicians I'm working with right now, they're very important to me. They're all my friends. I don't want to ever go deep into experience where we're a band. Every band is destined to break up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to make, I'm trying to find a way to, to go do live shows with guys who are so good. They need one, maybe two rehearsals and we're ready to go, but they're also their own independent thing. And I think this could work. I'm, I'm planning to play live shows with Matt North and Buick six, Matt North and the red dirt boys oh, nice. where the Johnny come lately is actually me. Yeah. You know, I'm, <laughs> They're a group of guys who know each other. They play together. They know how that works and feels. Yeah. And I'm going to be the one coming in late who has to adjust. And I feel at this point in my life, that might be the best plan. And if I, I would love to get to a point where I'm working with management or some supportive company that where I could put together a band and actually pay them what they're worth yeah. and go to her. That's really what I would love to do. But Am I going to put a bunch of grownups in a van and go to Knoxville? No way. No way. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh... But we've got, we've got seven cool videos coming out. I shot a bunch of videos and um, I'm, I've done that. Made a, the video for Hollywood forever. I couldn't be happier with it. That'll probably be out in late February, March. You know, that's probably my favorite song on the record. And I'm glad you mentioned it. Well, where can people find the videos when they come out? How can they follow you on social media and yeah. keep track of live shows and new albums and everything else you're doing? All, yeah. All my videos are going to be posted. My website, mattnorth.net is where there's a whole video page and, and, and any video I've ever made will be there. I'm going to put them on, on YouTube you know, it's fun. I'm still one of these guys. I'm guilty of what I call generational ignorance. Uh, YouTube came into my life at a different point in my life. And I was very afraid of it for about 10 years and <laughs> afraid of a lot of these new things, you know, and I had a flip phone until I think two or three years ago. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that tells you a lot, <laughs> uh, but, but I'm catching up. I'm catching up now. And, but no, you know, my website is, is probably the best place to go. You can link to where to buy an album, where to watch a video, where to keep up on, on what I'm doing. Mattnorth.net. That's okay. the hub. And you have the uh, social media links on the site too, like uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Correct. I do. I do Instagram. I do Twitter and I do Facebook. I even do Pinterest. Oh yeah. I'm, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. I'm up. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm done with MySpace. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been so much fun talking with you and and hearing the stories. I really do appreciate all the time you spent and, and 
the candidness of the stories with your son and Mitch. It's just, I love hearing stories like that. And, and uh, I'm so glad things worked out well for, for you and, and your son and your family. And it's, it's that I'm so happy. Thank you. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. There is a ticket prices and then the state of home after a bank. Take you out to the ball game. Yeah, if we had any gas in the tank. You see the fireworks in the distance. Yeah, if we listen, we can hear the sounds. Our team is cursed playing home games over those in the unburial ground. They never stayed up after a bank. They never stayed up after a bank. Ballpark Frank For it's one, two, three, four And 